Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I want to thank my sponsors, Topps, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's uh, an episode for your listening enjoyment. You're a parent and a former CEO. If you're going to call the hobby in for a difficult talk, what are you telling the hobby it needs to do to improve its performance without sugarcoating it? John, I touched on that at the industry summit. If you could ask the genie to change things, what would you want to change? Uh, what I've learned from that is that what I would want to change is not the same as what local card shops would want to change, which is not the same as what the rank and file collector wants to change. You've done it all, though. Other than manufacturing cards, you've done it all. So you have a unique perspective. I've manufactured one set. Did you? When we were running for the 86 National and we were unsuccessful, thankfully, I'm not the czar of anything. I don't think I'm even the czar of my own home. I try to throw out good ideas. I want to influence the influencers. What I mentioned at the industry summit is I think fanatics just needs to execute. They really want to grow the industry. They don't want to mess it up. They're really smart people. But what I would say to them is, don't try to build Rome in a day. Don't go slow. Be diligent. What did John wouldn't say, go fast, but don't rush or don't hurry or something. He was real big on executing the fundamentals without being frazzled. So you could execute quickly. That's what they need to do, not do shortcuts or skip steps, but build the industry with increasing their marketing spend and gradually increasing their product they're distributing. I don't know that they need more products or more of any product, but if they can get the products in more outlets, then they could do more products and more of the products, and it wouldn't feel like it was too much if we had twice as many collectors. That's what I'm hoping for. I don't need to give fanatics a talk, and they're the big gorilla in the industry right now. And the question is, if they buy Panini, is that good or bad? If they buy Panini, they're not going to have any reason to not double or triple their marketing spend because Panini will not get the benefit of that. If they do that now before they bought Panini and they double the marketing spend and really increase the pie, they've just increased the price and value of Panini if they eventually want to buy it. So I think there's some sequencing to that, but I'm optimistic. They're really smart guys. And just the whole fanatics business model is to be mindshare for people that are interested in sports stuff. And cards fit into that for sure. The other thing I talked about in my industry summit talk is PSA. People want to tell PSA to how to run their business. And I'm thinking, I admire what they've done. They're hitting it out of the park. They are the standard as much as I hate to admit it. I don't want them to mess up. I want them to continue to do great. And I want BGS and perhaps even others to work harder and innovate and do better to where they can catch them and pass them, but not because P- PSA stumbled. So Have they turned a corner, BGS, you think? I think they're turning the corner right now. When I was talking to Jeremy in the spring, they had the specter of moving. You and I have talked about that. Your suggestion is that when you're a major move like that, we did that a couple times in our history, and it just – Everything Disruptor. Put yeah. Disruptor. Yeah. yeah, and I'm hoping my cards are not lost. I don't think they are, <laughs> but I don't have them. But they've survived that, and I've seen the new offices. There's lots of room, and they're running a special now, so they're being responsive yeah. to the new market realities. Is that a direct product of the new facility and capabilities? 
Well, I, I, it's going to increase demand. Uh, you lower the price, normally you increase the demand. And the turnaround time is published as defined. They've added a number of graders. They were really capacity constrained and limited in their old office. Now they have ample space to do stuff. I went out there, I had some ideas for them. And I thought, wait, you're cool it on the ideas because it's not that they need to create a new division. They need to really execute on the divisions that they have. They need to improve their price guides, improve their print and digital editorial aspect, as well as the grading and the authenticating. They've got a platform from which to grow, and I'm hopeful they're going to execute well. What would it take for me to set up at a card show one more time? Well, the question is just one more time. I actually might like it, John, if I set up at a card show, especially as you suggest, if I set up with Rich, then I wouldn't have to be at the table all the time. He is so gregarious and Mm -hmm. so eager to engage with anybody that walks up. I'm not of that personality. I like people, but it wears me out if I keep getting asked the same questions. But I guess it could happen. And there's two possibilities of where it could happen, where it'd be worth it. One is the Dallas card show. Right. Just across town. I know Kyle. And I know he does a good job. So it's kind of a sure thing. And then the second would be the national. I think I could kind of twist arms at the national that I could have a table there. Now, if I did it with Rich, that'd be great. So, uh, yeah, there's two problems with that. You wouldn't get a darn thing done. Okay. You'd be overwhelmed, I think. That's why I'm advocating for the semi anonymity of the Philly show. You guys came up to Philly and did it. I did one of the very first Philly shows, and I was right. pretty honest then, but, right. and it was always a great show for me because I was more of a vintage dealer back in the 70s. But that's a possibility. I mean, it's just so cool to fill up your trunk with stuff and drive a half hour yeah, I got you. To, up to Plano and unload it and then put it back in your car and leave. And if somebody says, hey, you didn't bring this, and I'll say, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll bring it back tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So I think my that makes sense. Run, my dry run could be Dallas, but Rich could definitely be my Batman and Robin or something. Madden, Summerall. Summer. Listen, you have to admit, right? As as someone like I said, who's trying many platforms to sell cards for research purposes and to sell cards, there's no better way to sell cards, right? Than than a show, I would imagine. Well, certain cards. I mean, my bulk cards I'm doing on eBay. My individual, slightly better cards I'm selling on ComC, and I'm pleased with those. The next rank up, I've thought, are those trade night kinds of cards? Could I, should I fill up mm-hmm. a small box and just show up at a trade night? But then I'm not selling them. I'm just trading them for other stuff that <laughs> exactly. I want. Do you find that trade nights are mostly modern? I haven't really experienced it to the full. Uh, I think it's more modern than I probably would prefer. But for me to trade Roberto Clemente and Mickey Mantle for Luca Zion, uh, yeah. I just don't. Uh, well, first of all, we can't stay up that late what they've done, though, is the Friday night trade nights, you're right, because Friday night, the show goes till nine to a lot of these places. It's a later night on the weeknight. And then Saturday, it usually closes at six. So I could conceivably do it. It's when I've done my hobby content creator dinners, right. at, you know, six or six thirty after. So I could conceivably do a trade night on a Saturday evening and be back before midnight and enjoy but I'm not ready for that. Uh, in another year or two, really am a little bit at the mercy of BGS because I'm not going to do trade night with raw cards. And so that's going to be heavy, heavy weight. Saying most of your stuff at BGS is modern, right? Well, I mean, it's whatever. Yeah, there's modern, but there's older stuff too. I've just given them stuff in waves right. and uh, the waves are too big and they got so far behind. I've got pre-war stuff as well as 
50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, modern, all the way up. I just throw it in a box, John. When I get it, whether it's in a dollar box or a better box or in a collection that I buy, I just think that this is worth getting graded. Throw it in there. And then when I get all the cards graded back from what I put in last year, after I clear the accounting on that, then I'll say, okay, now I'll bring them another big group. But it's probably too big. So at this table you and Rich set up at, you'll have a bargain slab in, then it sounds like, right? I don't think so. I'm the price guide guy. I think I'd ever think <laughs> The problem with the dollar boxes is that, well, it's not a problem for me because it's people having the difficulty of pricing cards, but I can intuitively price cards. Right. And I think most people can't. And so I'm not going to put something in the dollar that's a $10 card. Uh, and if it's slab, really all the slabs should be at least 10 bucks because it costs that much. Right. But I understand that if it's a bad grade on a not so great card, it, it could go for less than the cost of grading. Uh, oh, the environmental footprint. How often has that been discussed? Because it's brutal, right? I mean, no, cards and supplies don't exactly shout, look how green we are. I don't think the hobby community lives in that political neighborhood. Most of them. Some of them do. Right. The saving grace to me is if you're talking about the junk wax era and treating cards as a commodity, leaving them on the shelf and throwing them away and stuff like that. Plastic sheets that were made out of PVC. PVC, those are consumables and wind up in a landfill. I'm totally against that. Right. Okay. But modern cards that presumably have value. And modern supplies that are sustainable in the sense that they ought to be around for a really long time, then I don't find that as objectionable. You know, there's not going to be a landfill with that stuff in there. So it's going to have a lifetime and it's preserving the cards that you have. So I'm not going to get bent out of shape about that. If there were some regulatory pressures for cards that chop down trees to make the wood pulp, to make the paper, to make the cards, that would just drive up the price the card companies already except for some of the flagship and opening days and things like that there's less cards per box less cards per pack certainly than there were 30 40 50 years ago you're getting swatches and autographs and things that i don't think are winding up in the landfill and they're just not that many base cards that are common players in fact there's not even common players that much anymore except in like i said some of those exception the tops total and things like that everything you get out of a pack is a known player for some of these brands and has some distinction whether it's serial numbered or is a special insert they're boxes that are one pack of five cards so is that environmentally unfriendly you could say if you could fit 10 cards in that same Mylar packaging, then you could say, yeah, somebody could argue that. Yes. Right. But I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the process of making a card, like you said, chopping trees down and whatever chemicals are in there, whatever. Has anybody made recyclable cards or cards made out of recycled paper? I put a lot of cardboard on my curb every Thursday night for recycling. Yeah. It seems like that or the, the fire rows, the, the shoe boxes, whatever. It seems to me like it'd be a no-brainer to make that out of recycled material. I don't know what the price impact on that is, but it seems to make sense. Well, to be frank, I think if you said these five row super monster boxes are you know, eight, 10, 12 bucks. Yeah. If you said, hey, you want to buy one of those, but we have this recycled paper and that's only $15. <laughs> I just don't think you're going to get many. Yeah, hobbies. you're right. I'm going to pay extra for that. 
my point, I don't see the super monster boxes, the four rows, the five rows, the triple shoes, all that stuff. I don't think they're landing in the landfills. Right. They're worth more than the cards that are inside the boxes now. Yep, right. People throw away cards, but they don't. People throw, throw away the cards or keep the boxes. Yeah. I hope there's not regulatory pressure on, on, uh, uh, but if, again, that's one of the problems of fanatics yeah. with Congress come after them and say, hey, you've got to be socially responsible. You're the prime producer of these cards. What's your plan for sustainability and being green? We want to gl- grow this thing into a global endeavor. There's, countries that are a lot more hardcore about this than we are if there's some country that told fanatics you know what we can't accept your product unless it's like this right then they're resourceful they're going to say okay we'll do that right so maybe there's a a sports card insights go back to venezuela back Mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s that was about as horrible of cardboard (laughs) and cardstock that you could ever imagine so it's not just the cards were worn and played with they were really pitiful low-grade cardstock. There's no whiteness quotient or whatever it is. They just were very porous. and They were almost biodegradable. I doubt that was because Venezuela was economically green conscious back 50 years. It just was to save money. Uh, On the other side. Cost more. Cost more. Conscious in that way. 